But uh, as we look at this passage, let's turn to God, ask for his help again. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider the life of Jesus, his teaching and his miracles, they help us to understand who he really is and how we must respond. And we pray, Lord, that as we do hear your word, that we might receive it as it really is, the word of God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, have you ever heard of the saying, I'm sure you have, to err is human? Heard of that? To err is human. What does it mean? It just means humans are prone to make mistakes. Humans make mistakes. That's what it means to be human. We make mistakes all the time. Now, now I'm sure all of you have made some mistakes throughout your life, some small ones, some big ones. But I wonder how your mistakes compare to some of these. Now, in 1979, at that time, Bill Gates was 23 years old. He wanted to sell his company, Microsoft, to this guy, Ross Perot. At that time, this guy was the CEO of his company, a company that was worth $1 billion. Now, Bill Gates offered his company to this guy for $40 million in 1979. Now, this guy, Ross Perot, he thought, that's way too much. He thought, that's unrealistic. And so, what happened? Well, Microsoft today, you know what it's worth? The market capital of Microsoft is about $343 billion. And so, if you think about that, bad decision. <laughs> to err is human. He, he's actually reported uh, saying that it was one of the biggest business mistakes I've ever made. Bad Decisions lead to bad consequences. Well, what about this? Do you remember this company, Kodak? Yeah. Well, Kodak was in fact credited with being the first company to develop digital photography. You know, all the digital photos that you take now. Anyone still remember the film? Some of you, Gen Z or, you know, whatever. Yeah, well, digital photography was first developed by Kodak in 1975. That's a long time ago. Well, Kodak developed that. They had the technology, but they sat on it. They sat on it for a long time. They thought, we don't want to develop this. If we develop this, it's going to affect our film business. And so what happened? Well, all the other companies, they, they caught up, they went ahead of Kodak, and Kodak, in 2012, they filed for bankruptcy. At that time, they were the big film company, camera company. Bad decisions lead to bad consequences. Well, what about this? Do you know this movie? E.T., you know this company. Okay. Well, the Mars company, you know, Mars, the company, the one that makes chocolates, Mars bars and M&Ms. Okay, well, that company, they were asked by Steven Spielberg uh, to have their M&Ms in the movie. You know how E.T. eats M&M, oh, little chocolates, they're not M&Ms, in fact. Well, anyway, Spielberg asked Mars if they could use that. Now, Mars thought, this is a silly movie. It's not going to be popular at all. Why waste our time, our chocolates? Well, Hershey's got in. And what happened was the month the movie was released, Hershey's, their chocolates, those little chocolates, they, they jumped 65% that month. Bad decisions lead to bad consequences. What about this one? Who's this? Oh dear, you are old. (laughs) 
Well, anyway, this group, they auditioned at Decca Records. And do you know what happened? They went, they played their song. Well, Decca Records thought Qatar groups were falling out of favour. This is not going to be good at all. And so they were turned down. Well, of course, we know the rest was history. Beatles went on to become the best-selling band in the history of the world. Bad decisions lead to bad consequences. Now, I suspect none of us have made crazy mistakes like that, bad decisions like that, losing billions of dollars. But I'm sure we have all made bad decisions, small ones, big ones. But now I've got a question for you. What do you think the worst decision any human being can make? What's the worst? And what I want you to do, I'm only going to give you 20 seconds, turn to the person next to you and ask, what's the worst decision a human being can make? Losing billions of dollars? What do you think? Turning down the Beatles? So 20 seconds, turn to each other. Okay, well, I'll get your attention. Now, anyone game enough to, uh, game enough to share what the other person said? <laughs> well, what, what are some bad decisions that people can make? You guys are just too holy. No, no one makes bad decisions. Yes, Miles. <laughs> that would be pretty bad. <laughs> And that will be distracting. <laughs> Anyone else? Suicide or murder? Yeah. I mean, once you commit suicide, you can't change that, can you? Often those who do try and fail, they never try again. But anyway, that's another thing. Um, or those who commit murder. Imagine those people living with the guilt and the shame of that. And of course, there are bad decisions that people make. Hayden, you got one more? That's okay. Well, people make bad decisions all the time, driving recklessly and suffering for that, having an accident, um, getting a divorce, thinking that that's for my happiness, but what results is a broken family, broken children, killing someone and going to jail for that. There are consequences. Bad decisions lead to bad consequences. Well, I want to put to you today that as bad as all those decisions are, as bad as those consequences are, There is something worse. And what we see in our passage today is the worst decision any person can make. And everyone has the ability to make this decision. So we're going to have a look at this passage. And we've been looking at the Pharisees. We've been looking at them for several weeks now. So let's turn, open your Bible to chapter 12 and we'll have a look at this. Well, the Pharisees, we've been looking at them studying them, seeing what they've been doing and they've been making bad decisions after bad decisions after bad decisions. Jesus says to them, come to me, all you who are weary and weak and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me. You'll have the best life if you come to me. And what do the Pharisees do? They say, no, we'd rather the yoke. We'd rather the burden. Bad decision. Jesus says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And what do the Pharisees do? They say, no. They, and they went out and they plotted 
on how they might kill Jesus. And Jesus did the casting out of demons, getting rid of evil, the exorcisms. The Pharisees, seeing that rather than seeing this is the power of God in Jesus, they accused Jesus, you're satanic. That's what we saw last week. And so we've been seeing the Pharisees, they're making bad decisions after bad decisions after bad decisions. Now, just before we think, Pharisees, you, you can't dig a deeper hole for yourself than that, can you? You can't get any worse than that, can you? Well, you can. This is what they do today. And so rather than accept from all the healings, all the miracles, the display of the power of heaven in Jesus, and rather than recognising this is the Messiah, this is the King who has come to save us, to deliver us, rather than see that, what do they say to Jesus today? They say to him, well, prove yourself. Let's see you prove yourself. So have a look, verse 38. Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. They want Jesus to prove himself, that he is in fact the Messiah. And so what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus could have responded, you dimwit, what have you been seeing? I've been doing all these things. What's wrong with you people? Jesus could have responded that way, but he didn't. Or Jesus could have in fact done something. I mean, if Jesus is in fact the Lord of the universe, with power over the universe, he could do anything. There's nothing that is too hard for him. And so he could have impressed them. He could have done something to show them a little glimpse of the power of heaven. But of course, Jesus didn't do that as well. I mean, if Jesus did do something right there and then, when the Pharisees asked him, show us a sign, and if Jesus did do something, well, Jesus would have been a bit like a, a showman, uh, uh, someone there just to impress them, a magician. It would be like them saying to Jesus, jump, and for Jesus to respond, how high? Of course Jesus wouldn't do that, so he didn't do that. But more than that, you see, the miracles of Jesus weren't done at all for the purpose of impressing anyone. You know, Jesus wasn't like to the disciples, hey, Peter, James, check this out. Check what I can do. Demon, get out. You see that? You see that? It happened. <laughs> you see, Jesus wasn't there to impress the people. Rather, he did these miracles to display the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God on these frail, weak people. And he did that to display his identity, to show them who he was. But you see, more than that, even if Jesus was to do some more miracles for the Pharisees to see, it wouldn't have convinced them anyway. You see, the problem they had was not that they, had not, not that they didn't see enough and enough of the miracles of Jesus, but their problem was the hardness of their heart. Their heart was wrong. It was cold, it was stubborn, it was wicked, it was evil and it was a heart that had already rejected Jesus. And so what did Jesus do? Well, perhaps to their shock, Jesus turns it around on them. You want me to prove who I am to you? Well, Jesus in a sense says, well, well, you've just proven who you are to me. You want to know who I am? Well, I just found out who you are. And so Jesus says in verse 39, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. Do you see how damning that was for Jesus to say that? You are wicked. You people asking for a sign, you are wicked. But now Jesus says something quite profound. In fact, quite unexpected. They're asking for a sign and Jesus says none will be given. But instead Jesus offers something greater, a greater sign, the sign of Jonah. See that? Verse 39. None, no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
Now, why did Jesus align himself with this prophet? Why the prophet of Jonah? Why not someone else? I mean, if you know the story of Jonah, we know the story of Jonah. Jonah was not your conventional prophet. God said, go to Nineveh and preach to it. He went the other way, to Tarshish. God said, show mercy, show love, show grace. He said, I want to see judgment. I want these people burning. God said, do this, he did that. And so Jonah was not your conventional prophet. He was rebellious. And so why did Jesus align himself with Jonah? Why not align himself with the great Moses or the bold Elijah or the persevering Isaiah? Why not those prophets? Well, you see, it was not with the rebellion of Jonah that Jesus was aligning himself with. It was with Jonah's experience. And that's what we see in verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man, the Son of Man, that's the title Jesus likes to use of himself. The Son of Man is the one with divine power, one given power and authority over the whole universe, the one that is prefigured in Daniel chapter 7. And so Jesus says, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's another way of saying that the Son of Man will be dead for three days. And so just as Jonah was as good as dead in the belly of the fish, Jesus is saying here, he will be dead, he will be killed, he will die, and he will be delivered from that. And so Jesus is in effect saying to the Pharisees, that the miracles, the signs you want, you're not going to see any of that. I'm not going to give any of that to you, but you will see this. You will see this one sign, this greater sign. A man will die. He will start to decay and rot in the grave. And three days later, he will come back to life. You will see that. You will get to witness that. And that will be the sign. That will be proof that I am who I say I am. And so Jesus now warns them. Jesus warns them of the grave seriousness of their rejection of him. You see, this sign is greater than what they've, uh, what, what they've seen. And they will eventually see that. And so Jesus is, in a sense, saying, the more you know now, uh, the greater the judgment, the more culpable you are. The more you see, the more culpable you are. And so the Pharisees, they had it so good then. Standing before them was the very Son of God, the Messiah, the King, the one who would deliver the world, the one who would offer forgiveness, the one who is the hope of the world. He was there right in front of them. But yet rather than see that this was the King, that this was the Messiah, rather than accept him, they rejected him. The more they knew more is expected from them. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you know more, more is expected from you. If you know me, I've got three kids, Esther, Caleb, Ethan. Esther's eight, eight, six and four. I expect a whole lot more from Esther than I do from Ethan. If I say to Esther, what's the combustion temperature of petroleum? I expect that. (laughs) No, she doesn't know, but I went from Ethan. But you get the idea. The more you know the more is expected. And so the Pharisees, they got to see so much. They got to see the, 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 uh, the blind seeing, the lame walking. They got to see all that, but yet they would refuse to accept Jesus. And so now Jesus gives them a warning, the seriousness of their rejection. Jesus goes on to say, you, you remember the Ninevites, the, the wicked Gentiles? The Ninevites were in fact renowned for being evil. They would skin their enemies alive. They would plaster them up to let the enemy see, stay away. They were wicked. They were evil. But yet they got to hear from Jonah. 
a short message, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And they all repented, they all believed. And then there's another illustration Jesus used, the Queen of Sheba, another Gentile. She travelled all the way from perhaps Ethiopia up to Jerusalem to hear of Solomon's wisdom. But then Jesus says to them, you guys, you get to see all these signs that I've been displaying. Demons are frightened of me. I'm forgiving sins. I'm calming the storm. You're seeing all these things. You're seeing way more than what those guys saw. You're seeing the things of heaven. I'm greater than Janet, the greatest of all the prophets. I'm greater than Solomon, greater than any king. You see all that, you see me, but you still reject me. And so Jesus goes on and says, you, you know what's going to happen? Because you're rejecting the very Son of God, the Son of Man who's before you. Well, Jesus goes on to say the Ninevites, the Gentiles, the Queen of Sheba, she's a Gentile. They're going to stand at judgment and condemn you. I mean, they would have been so angry at hearing that their blood would have been boiling. A Gentile judging us Pharisees. They're going to say to you, Jesus, saying, you fool, you've seen so much more than us, but yet you refuse to believe. And so that's what we see in the next few verses, 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here, the queen of the south, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, And now one greater than Solomon is here. You see, there's nothing worse that can be done like what the Pharisees did in rejecting the Son of God, the Son of Man, their only Saviour. They knew more, they saw more, and more was expected from them. And so their judgment will be greater. But the Pharisees, they just did not get it. They did not get it at all. They couldn't see how serious their rejection of Jesus was. And so what Jesus does now, he's, he uses a parable, a short parable, to illustrate the greater consequence that awaits them. Now this next bit can sound a bit confusing, and I was a bit confused by this. But a big clue in understanding this next bit is to remember that this person here represents the generation. And Jesus is speaking about what will happen if they continue to reject him. And so let's have a look. Verse 43. It's a parable, remember? When an evil spirit comes out of a man. All right, let's stop there. That's what's happening in the ministry of Jesus. He's, he's been casting out demons, performing exorcisms. The power of heaven was overpowering the kingdom of darkness. He was purging the people of the influence of the devil. They were seeing that. And so we go on. And so verse 43 still. The spirit, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then he says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds a house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Now what does that mean? Well, what's happening was that through the work of Jesus, through the exorcisms of Jesus, he was casting out demons. He was purging the people from the influence of evil. But yet the people were not responding to Jesus. They were not accepting him. They were rejecting him still. They were not giving his allegiance to him and so they were leaving their their allegiance void in a sense. And so verse 45, then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And so Jesus is saying to them, I'm doing all these things. You need to turn to me. You can't remain rejecting me. If you don't, 
in a sense, you're left void. You can't be neutral with me. You're either for me or against me. You're either with me or not with me. And so what happens? Well, this man, this generation is exploited by the devil and the first condition of that man is worse than the... The last condition of the man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. And so what Jesus is saying there or trying to illustrate there in that little parable is you refuse to believe. You see all these things, I'm doing all these things, you refuse to believe. Well, things are getting worse for you. Things will get worse for you. You can't remain neutral with me. You have to be with me or against me and you will get worse. Your depravity, your wickedness, your evilness is going to go from worst to worst. You're going to come under more and more under the influence of evil. And we know what happened with the Pharisees, don't we? We know what happened with that generation, don't we? I mean, at that stage, the Pharisees, they've only plotted to kill Jesus. They haven't killed him yet. But we know that eventually they did. They managed to do that. And so what we're seeing here is the rejection of, the, the gravity of rejecting Jesus. It is serious stuff. You can't muck around with Jesus. It's deadly serious. There's a greater judgment and the consequences are great. But in our passage, there's a flip side. There's a flip side. If that is what awaits those who reject Jesus, what then awaits those who accept Jesus? Well, just as there's nothing worse than rejecting Jesus, there's actually nothing better than accepting Jesus. And what does this acceptance look like? Well, Jesus goes on to explain in quite a radical way. Jesus redefines basic human relationships, basic human allegiance. He calls for allegiance to him that is greater than your allegiance to your family. And so he says to them, you need to be with me even before you are with your father or mother or brothers or sisters. Your allegiance to me is first, beyond even your family. Now, now, have you heard of the old proverb or saying, blood is thicker than water? You know what that means? It means that the ties to the family must be stronger than your ties to your friends or those not inside the family. Well, Jesus, in a, in a sense, is redefining that. He, he's saying, spirit now is thicker than blood. Your allegiance to God, your allegiance to Jesus must outweigh your allegiance to even family. And so what happens in this story? Have a look, verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. And so Mary and, his other, uh, and her other sons, the brothers of Jesus, they're probably wanting to call Jesus home. Jesus, stop getting the Pharisees angry. You know, stop making these ridiculous claims about yourself. Stop doing what you're doing. Come home. Come to Nazareth and, and continue being a carpenter. Stop causing trouble. And so what did Jesus do? Verse 48. He replied to him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he points to the disciples. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is saying, These disciples who left their parents who left their family and followed me. They are my brother. They are my sister. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to give your allegiance to Jesus. 
the allegiance that outweighs your allegiance to your family. But there's also a reward, a greater reward. Do you see that in that story? Do you notice that reward? You see, more than being accepted by Jesus, more than being in the good books of Jesus when you accept Jesus, you're actually considered a brother and sister of Jesus. You're considered family. Do you see how profound that is? On the one side, to reject Jesus is terrible. It is horrifying. It's the worst thing any human can do. But on the other side, to accept Jesus is the best thing any human can do because you will belong to the kingdom of God. You'll belong in the family of God. You'll belong to the family of the king. You're brought from the king of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus where he is king. That is what happens when you accept Jesus. And Jesus was trying to make this clear and plain to those who were there. You do what the Pharisees are doing, rejecting me. It is terrible. The consequences will be great. But if you accept me, you've become family. You see, this is a profound thing that we actually only see clearly in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, what do the people of God call God? They call him by his personal name, Yahweh. They don't call him Father. Whereas Jesus redefines that. In the New Testament, what happens? That blessing is seen clearer. In focus, you are now a child of God. God is your Father. Now, have you ever imagined or dreamed of being part of a royal family? Now, you are a prince or princess, your crown prince, your next on the throne. Ever imagined that? The castles, the banquets, the wealth, the popularity, the paparazzis. Imagine that. How good would that be? Some of you would like that, some of you won't. But you see what Jesus is offering here. If you accept him, you belong to the kingdom, the king of heaven. You belong to this king. You belong to this family. Far better than any royal family. Far better than being born in a castle. You belong to this. So this is the wonderful glory of the gospel. This is the wonderful news of the gospel. When you come to Christ, you accept him. He is your king. You're brought into his family. And so Jesus brings about this new family that is centred on those who do the will of the Father. Not simply a bunch of people who believe the same thing, live the same way, do the same things. But people who do the will of God, they belong to a family. Nothing better than that. Nothing worse than rejecting Jesus. Nothing better than accepting him. You see, what happens, as we heard this morning, in fact, Chris gave a, a talk on adoption. What happens is that when you're brought into the family, you're like adopted into the family of God. But you, you, we must think about that. Have you ever thought about what happens in adoption? Adoption is a wonderful display of the gospel, taking someone who is a stranger to you and making them your own, giving them what is yours. Wonderful display of adoption. But do you know what happens in many adoptions? Those who want to adopt, they pick the strong, they pick the healthy. They pick the one who's not weird. They pick the one who's lovable. That's not what happens in this adoption. God picks the weak, the frail, the ones who, who turn to God in mercy and know, I am weak, I am nothing. Have mercy on me. God takes us. And that's what happens in adoption. And so Jesus is saying, you accept me, you belong to the family of God where Jesus is king. And so now I wonder, 
whether we actually believe what we've heard today. There's nothing worse than rejecting Jesus. In all the decisions we'll make in life, nothing worse than rejecting Jesus. And there's nothing better than accepting Jesus. In all the decisions we'll make in life, there's nothing better than that. And I wonder whether we actually believe that. I wonder whether we do believe that there's actually nothing worse than rejecting Jesus. I mean, if you think about the world today, do you think we are less culpable or more culpable than the Pharisees? What do you think? Do we know more than them or do we know less than them? Well, the reality is that we've seen the sign of Jonah. We know what that is. Jesus died, rot in the grave for three days and came back alive. The world has seen that. If anything, this generation more culpable than the Pharisees. And so more is demanded of us. We know the gospel, we can proclaim it, people hear it, we are more culpable this generation. And so do we really believe this? There's nothing worse than rejecting Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject what he came to do. There's no forgiveness, no hope, no salvation at all. It's the worst decision anyone can make. But I suspect that some Christians, some of us even, don't really believe this. We live like we don't really think that rejecting Jesus is the worst thing ever. It's worth checking, isn't it? Do I really believe that rejecting Jesus is the worst thing ever? We need to check our hearts. And I do occasionally check my heart. Is this true for me? Do I really believe that truth? When people reject, that's the worst thing they can ever do. Because if we think about this, then we need to ask ourselves, all of us to ask ourselves, am I living as Christians should? Where this would hurt our heart, knowing that so many people are rejecting Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, are we living as Christians should? Or are we living complacently? Are we living our lives just going with the flow? Like this truth doesn't matter. This is the worst decision anyone can make. Now think about it. The vast majority of the world is making this decision. They're rejecting Jesus. It's the worst and the consequences are great. And so we need to check our hearts. Am I living as a Christian should? Or am I just complacent? You know, the things that fill my prayers, fill my mind, fill my heart, are the things of my life. Are the things that would give me a good life. Are the things that would set my life right. All the while, the vast majority of the world, they're actually rejecting Jesus. The worst decision any human can do is to do that. The vast majority of the world. And not just the world. Just think about our friends and our family. To reject Jesus, their only hope, their only salvation. Terrifying, terrible. And so how can we Christians, who understand the horror of rejecting Jesus, remain complacent? We have to reassess our hearts and our minds and our lives, don't we? Am I living like I believe that this is true? Or the flip side? What's the flip side? Do I really believe that accepting Jesus is the best thing ever? Accepting Jesus is the best thing anyone can ever do. Do I really believe that? Because if I do, because if you do, if you really believe that, well, you know what? You've actually made the most important and the best decision you'll ever make in life. I mean, we get so bogged down by so many decisions. What will I study? 
What will I do? What job will I pursue? Who should I marry? Where should I live? What should I buy? We get bogged down, we get stressed by all these things, but we should be liberated. You've made the most important, the best decision you've ever made and that is to follow Jesus, to accept him. You see how he puts all our decisions in life into perspective. No matter what I decide, I've already made the best decision. In a sense, it doesn't matter too much. It's all put into perspective because what happens when I accept Jesus? I belong to the family of God. I belong to the family of God. And as we heard this morning, God adopts us into his family. It is the climax of the gospel. You know, God went beyond the core of what was necessary in bringing us into his family. He could have saved us and left us as saved, people who would enjoy heaven but not part of his family. But he brought us into his family. And if I've already made that decision, all my other decisions in life, they're put into perspective. Nowhere near as important as this. Nowhere near as important. And so what it means now then is that if we are part of the family of God, then we need to live like the family of God, don't we? We need to live like this is important. I've made the best decision ever. I belong to God. I am his child and I belong to the family of God with his church. You see, what, what, why we do what we do each Sunday, why we do what we do each growth group and when we meet, this family will last beyond the grave. We will see each other, if you are a follower of Jesus, in a thousand years' time, we will actually see each other. We will know each other. This family is one that lasts because this is the family of the king. And so when we are the family of God, when we are one family, we need to remember that. It affects the way we live, how we treat each other. You see, the, the, the family I love, obviously the family God has given me, but that is a bigger family than just my immediate family. It is the family of God. I'll be with you forever. You'll be with me, like it or not, forever. This is the family of God. And so it's always wonderful when the family of God loves each other and cares for each other. I mean, just recently I've seen how this has been, has been wonderfully displayed by, the, by this family, how we've cared for each other, someone's had a baby and, and, and people were keen to, to help out, bring some food to them. One person I heard caught public all the way to almost the jungle to give food and then come back. Ringwood, not the jungle. <laughs> by public transport. I mean, this is what it means to be part of the family of God, isn't it? This week I received my bill for Esther's fees and I discovered it was actually all cleared off by someone else. It's in credit. <laughs> wonderful, not that you have to do that, but <laughs> but wonderful display of the love that is, is seen in the family of God. And so for us, two things we need to remember today. The worst decision anyone can make is to reject Jesus. Do you actually believe that? Are you happy with people around you continue to live their life not accepting Jesus, not trusting in him? Would you associate yourself with them in a way where you would be united in marriage with them? I mean, how terrifying would that be? Do you really believe that? Or do you really believe that the best decision any human can make is to accept Jesus? And if you've done that already, how can we live without the joy of that? And so, there's nothing worse than rejecting Jesus. There's nothing better than accepting him. You have to ask yourself, where do you stand? Let me pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that Jesus came to not only call out out of darkness, but to bring us into your family. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might help us all to feel the weight of what it means to reject Jesus. We pray that that will always be a weight on our heart as we live in this world, seeing people who are doing just that. And so we pray, Lord, that you might give us your love for this lost world. But also help us to see the great joy and great comfort it is to make the best decision in our life to accept Jesus, where we now belong to him and we are part of your family so that we can cry out to you as our Father, as Abba. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.